Our next speaker is Jody Dion Odom. She's Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, where she also serves as the Director of Women's Health Services for the HIV AIDS Clinic. And she is uh, tasked with AR, discussing ART and conception and pregnancy in women with HIV, a thorny and rapidly changing area. Jody, welcome. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here and to talk about my very favorite topic. So this is exciting. I don't have any relevant financial affiliations to disclose to you. And I have three learning objectives. I hope that by the end, you'll be able to identify two web-based resources about perinatal HIV to feel relatively comfortable initiating data-driven ART in a pregnant woman in your clinic, and to be able to list two risks and benefits of ART in pregnancy. So we'll do that through a brief case presentation. We'll review the benefits and then the risks, some information about how to optimize management, the resources I promised, and then some of the key research questions in our field. So to start with a case, someone I saw a couple months ago, 35-year-old G4P3 with HIV. She's 33 and two seven weeks pregnant. Arrived in the US from Guatemala just eight days ago. Comes to your HIV clinic to establish care, feels well. In terms of her HIV history, she tells you that she had been diagnosed in 2017 when she had a stillbirth at 34 weeks gestation. During that pregnancy, she says her initial antenatal screening test had been negative. So it appears that she acquired acute HIV during her last pregnancy, and she tells you that her husband in Guatemala is HIV positive. She was started on ART at that time, Efavirenz TDF-FTC, and she had been adherent until eight days ago when she started spacing out her medicine because she saw she was about to run out. In terms of her OB and social history, she had two prior uncomplicated vaginal deliveries, has healthy daughters, 15 and 11, started prenatal vitamins at four weeks when she realized she was pregnant. Other than maternal anemia, she's been doing well and she's taking supplemental iron. She was born and raised in a semi-rural town. She works in a local store selling clothes. Right now, she's living in the US with family, um, denies tobacco, alcohol use, drug use. She's honestly a little bit freaked out about the American medical system and says, please don't let them operate on me. Please don't let them operate on me. Um, but she's really happy to be in, in care. On exam, her vitals are stable. You detect fetal heart tones. She has a gravid uterus that's appropriate for her dating negative review systems, and the medications that I mentioned. The only thing notable on her labs is she still is anemic with a hematocrit of 29 and MCV of 80, but she has normal renal function, normal liver function. Her CD4 is good, 658, but if your lab is like mine, you don't have the viral load back as quickly. So the viral load is pending in this moment when you're seeing her. And again, if your clinic is like mine, you have this chart that stares in front of you when you're writing your notes that you may use to discuss with patients. And for people who don't manage pregnancy all the time, this is a little bit overwhelming to know which of these options are indicated and safe and have been studied in pregnancy. So I get a lot of questions about this um, because the data is different than non-pregnant adults. So a question for you all, how do you manage her ART? Hold her ART pending that viral load continue her current regimen, switch her to Bictecrevir, TAF, FTC, switch to Adazanavir, boosted with COBE and TDF, FTC, or call the HIV perinatal hotline. Your phone a friend option. 
Great. So 61% of you chose the correct option, which is to continue her current regimen. She's obviously tolerated this. She's done very well on it. And fortunately, her viral, viral load came back at 45 copies. So that made you feel better that even though she had spaced out her medicines for eight days, she still has a very, very low viral load. Calling the HIV perinatal hotline is not a wrong answer, by the way. Calling for help is always okay. The reason why I think it's critical to discuss this with you today is that if you look at the HIV epidemiology in the US for women and men, you see a lot of disease on the coasts where a lot of Americans live. But if you look at women, you see a preponderance of disease across the southeastern region and here in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey area. So a lot of you are probably already managing HIV in pregnancy. This is informed by the work that I do with the 1917 HIV clinic in Birmingham. Um, where we manage about 3,500 people living with HIV. Um, we have about 850 women um, that, we, that I, we help manage and about 20 to 40 pregnancies a year that we see. Um, we have a really great team of nurses, social workers, um, researchers, really, really privileged to get to work with them. The good news is we've made great progress in terms of preventing perinatal transmission or PMTCT. There's currently about 5,000 women a year with, with HIV who give birth. Um, there continues to be racial disparity that you can see um, in the women who are pregnant and the women living with HIV, where black women are, are more disproportionately impacted than white women. The perinatal HIV case count decreased 41% between 2012 and 2016, so that's a great success. And there were only 73 pediatric cases diagnosed in 2017. I was just um, a chief resident at NYU in 2016, and the team was really proud then of saying they had gone several years without seeing a single perinatal HIV transmission, and that was a while ago. So let's talk about the easy part first. You probably already can assume what the benefits are. This is my niece, born in Denver. The natural history tells us that if you do nothing for a pregnant woman, about one in four, 24% of the time, there will be vertical transmission. The landmark PACTG076 trial of AZT monotherapy, which you would never use to treat a woman today, was effective in bringing that rate down to 10%. Dual therapy brought it down to 3%, and now with current therapy, it's less than 1%. This is one slide from NICHD that shows you lots and lots of studies done over a very long period of time. And like everything else, in retrospect, maybe it's obvious that all the way along, what would have been best is to continue something all the way through a woman's life and not just focus on this 48-hour period when she's actually in labor. But the accumulation of studies does show, since there's an ongoing risk during pregnancy, during labor and delivery, and during breastfeeding in countries where breastfeeding is recommended, it is best for women to be on continual therapy, not on and off, and not on regimens that put them at risk of having resistant virus. When I'm talking with a woman who's newly diagnosed in pregnancy, it's very helpful to give her a goal. So usually the goal that I'm talking about with her is getting her to 1,000, less than 1,000. And that's based on this study and many others, showing that if you have women receiving ART, their vertical transmission rate is 1%, compared to women not getting ART with a vertical transmission rate of 
The other reason why 1,000 is sort of a magic number is related to the OBGYNs. They have data that says a vaginal delivery is safe as long as her viral load at delivery is less than 1,000. And a lot of patients, like my patient from Guatemala, would really like to avoid a cesarean. So that's a really good motivator for them, even if they don't like taking medicine every day, to try to aim for that goal. When to initiate therapy, I think, was a more relevant question in our field you know, 10, 15 years ago. We know now that the, the significant benefits of ART is when we start it early, as early as possible. And this is true for perinatal HIV as well. This is a nice study from ANRS, Laurent Mandelbrot. 8,000 mother-infant pairs followed over 12 years in France where they analyzed a the cohort according to the maternal viral load at delivery and the timing of the ART initiation. They had 56 vertical transmissions, 0.7%, but zero in the 2,600 women who had an undetectable viral load before conception. So this is our goal. We want to make a diagnosis before a woman becomes pregnant. We want to get her undetectable before she attempts to conceive, and that's the safest um, option for, for our, our patients. Since we have moved toward earlier initiation of therapy, the discussion of risks is especially pertinent. Um, you know that the organogenesis happens early on in pregnancy. The first four to eight weeks is when a lot of the, the um, development occurs. So the risks discussion is, is important to have also. These are the adverse pregnancy outcomes you will see in most studies, four groups, congenital malformation, stillbirth, low birth weight defined as less than 2,500 grams, and preterm delivery before 37 weeks. So we're gonna focus mostly, since I just have 30 minutes today, on congenital malformation and preterm delivery. The best data for congenital malformation comes from the FACT study, Pediatric HIV AIDS Prospective Cohort Study Surveillance. This is over 2,500 HIV-exposed, uninfected children, so babies who do not get HIV perinatally but are HIV-exposed during pregnancy, um, enrolled over a five-year period. They define congenital anomaly using standard definitions um, based on what the medical record said with an exam within the first 12 months of life. They adjusted it for factors that would be relevant for confounding maternal demographics, CD4, BMI, drug use, other medicines like anti-seizure medicines, which you know can increase the risk of congenital anomalies. And the prevalence was 6.8%, mostly musculoskeletal and cardiovascular. When they broke it down by drug class, you can see on the right-hand side, there was no association with any particular class and these major congenital anomalies. Although for protease inhibitors, there was a suggestion of a trend um, with a, an odds ratio of 1.4 with a 95% confidence interval between 1 and 1.9. One of the most um, devastating congenital anomalies that can occur is neural tube defects. And this is something that your patients may ask you about, and they may um, have specific questions around this. And it's important for HIV medicine because of some associations that we've, we've seen and talked about. So what you have here on the right is a nice review from New England Journal, where if you look here on the bottom, so this is the neural tube development. You can see the neural crest and the surface ectoderm that develops, starts to de begins to close 17 to 18 days after fertilization. Obviously, many times before a woman even realizes she's pregnant. And this is fully formed by seven weeks gestational age with a 0.1% prevalence in the general population. 
The prevalence can be an estimate that's not always correct because some women have terminations when they recognize that they have an NTD. Um, and some NTDs are not compatible with life. So this is an estimate that varies based on different populations that you look at. Early on, there were case reports of neural tube defects being associated with the Favrin's use. Just case reports. There were some animal studies. And this led the FDA in 2005 to recommend avoiding of Favrin's in the first trimester. This really had a chilling effect on the use of, of, of Favrin's in women of childbearing age. Um, and it took a number of years and a lot of good data to show that efavirenz is actually safe and effective in using uh, for women, even women of reproductive age. By 2012, the WHO promoted efavirenz to first line, and they clearly stated that the benefit of efavirenz outweighed the risk. This initial early concern about neural tube defect with efavirenz was not borne out in bigger studies. This Open spina bifida and closed spina bifida are two of the most common types of NTDs. So when you're reading these studies, those are the two that you'll hear about most often. This is an updated review from Nathan Ford showing that information, compiling all the data to say whether you compare women who got efavirenz or not efavirenz in the first trimester, no association with NTDs. And most of the data here you can see comes from the antiretroviral pregnancy registry, which we'll talk about in a few slides. I can tell you the day. So this was May 18th, 2018, when this report hit the news. Um, based on some data coming from Botswana that I'll show you in detail, there was a concern about a signal between dolutegravir and neural tube defect. This led to major reports around the world, many phone calls from our patients coming into our clinic, and really the need to come up with a plan for frontline providers as well as agencies what to do with ongoing studies, how to manage this risk. In the absence of definitive data, what do you do when there's a potential association seen and a potential signal that you're not sure if it's real or not real? Fortunately, the group at Harvard, led by Rebecca Zash, just published this updated data a few months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is called the Tsepamo study. And you can see um, what they are focusing on is the presence of these neural tube defects related to ART in Botswana. They took advantage of the fact that Botswana had been adopted as first, um, adopted dolutegravir as first line ART across the country in 2016. They trained their um, nurses to do newborn examinations, surface examinations for anomalies, and they examined 119,000 children between 2014 and 19. They had a really high number of women, 1,600, higher than other studies I'll show you, with dolutegravir exposure at conception. And overall, they had a neural tube defect rate of 0.08. So the initial report in June 2018 had this defect rate at 0.9. So this meant that the defect rate was lower than it was initially reported, which was very reassuring. There continues to be a difference between the women who were on dolutegravir at conception with five different neural tube defects detected of 1,600 exposures compared to 15 neural tube de defects and the 15,000 women who had non-dolutegravir exposures at conception. This is two women per 1,000, so this is a really rare complication. Um, and if you look at other groups on efavirenz at conception, dolutegravir started during pregnancy or HIV negative, you see similarly low rates of neural tube defects. 
So this information is excellent to have. It's good to be able to discuss with patients what the data is showing. We need to continue to collect this type of information, and we need to have surveillance systems that will pick up these very rare outcomes, because if we only use retrospective studies or only use observational studies, these are outcomes that can be easily missed. Whenever you talk about NTDs, people always think about folate supplementation. You're taught early in medical school about folate, and this is one of the uh, more effective primary prevention um, tools that we have. This was initially shown in 1976, but the landmark MRC study was published in Lancet 1991 that led to folate supplementation as primary prevention. They um, talked to the legislators in the U.S., and they agreed to supplement our bread flour in the U.S. in 1998. But current data is really showing that it's not that simple. Most women who have an infant with a neural tube defect have a normal folate level. It's not as if they're folate deficient in America. And twin-twin studies are showing that about 70% of NTDs are due to genetic predisposition. There are some areas of the world, like in northern China, where the rate is much higher than you'd expect on a population-based level. Um, and there's still a lot of work being done to understand exactly who is at the highest risk of these outcomes. The environmental risk, including folate intake, was about, thought to be about 30% of the risk. The studies also show that folic acid prevents certain NTDs, but not all. And in light of the new information with Zolutegravir, we know that Botswana does not have folate supplementation routinely in their diet. Is this part of the mechanism is a really important clinical question. So what they have been able to show, this was just published in AIDS by Cabrera, um, and this is a zebrafish model, so this is not in humans, this is not pregnant humans. In the zebrafish model, it appears that dolutegravir is a non-competitive antagonist of the folate receptor at therapeutic concentrations, meaning perhaps if all these women, we did give them folate supplementation, we could prevent some of these neural tube defects. So that's um, an exciting hypothesis that needs to be tested. These are never simple discussions, especially when you're talking about making policy-wide decisions that impact countries and millions of women. So this is a project led by Rochelle Walensky. Um, again, this is a modeling study. Um, like Tripp said, modeling studies are based on assumptions and data, which can change. But what this shows pretty convincingly is if you focus not just on the neural tube defect in the infant, which is here, pediatric deaths averted, assuming there is a real association between dolutegravir and um, neural tube defect. But if you look also at the deaths averted among women, sexual transmissions averted, and pediatric infections averted, since dolutegravir is more effective and better tolerated than efavirenz is, all the other options make you persuade you that dolutegravir is a good option to have for women. I think that this information is really helpful, but the best conversation to have is with the individual in front of you. Ideally, you're in a situation where you have a number of medicines on your shelves, and you discuss with your patient what the best option is for her based on her individual risk factors and her preferences. It's not quite that simple. In Africa, you often have a formulator that has one or two drugs only. So it is somewhat of a different scenario in Africa compared to the US. 
So in light of this, what we need is better data coming from the US, and this is my slide to encourage all of you to consider becoming an APR provider, or someone who reports data for a woman who may become pregnant on dolutegravir, on raltegravir, on any ART, that you can report information about outcomes into this data set. So um, we report our data from UAB. I found three providers in New York who report um, David Rosenthal at LIJ, Dorothy Smock at Presbyterian, and Rodney Wright at Montefiore. Um, let me show you an example of what this data looks like. So the first thing to notice if you look all the way in the left-hand column is we have some ART for which we have a lot of data. We have data on 19,000 women who've had ART exposure and about 10,000 who've had first trimester ART exposure. But if you look at the top, we have a whole lot more data for lamivudine and zidovudine than we do on the bottom for raltegravir, dolutegravir, cobicostat. When new HIV medicines are approved, they're often approved as a category B. But since pregnant women are not included in most of these trials, they are approved in the absence of data. So I do not rush to give my pregnant women the newest drug. I want to know that we have some accumulating information on safety, on efficacy, before I use a new drug that we don't know very much about yet. This is a really good resource for you if you want to know how many um, exposures there are for individual drugs that you're looking at as you're thinking about tolerability and her resistance panel, for example, and what her options are. You can see here, the, they give you the birth defect prevalence rate with a confidence interval and a threshold of the Metropolitan Atlanta Congen Congenital Defect Program. So this is on average about a 2.7% congenital anomaly rate, which is considered baseline. The Texas Birth Defect Registry has about 4.1. So all of the ART that we use for the most part is in the range of what's expected for a, non, for a pregnant woman who's not taking ART at all. The exception for the, at least the Metropolitan Atlanta data set, you see is uh, nelfinivir and, and didanosine, two HIV medicines that we use rarely to treat HIV and very rarely in pregnancy today. So I, this is a type of table that I, I refer to quite often. I mean, it's updated about every six months. So that's the congenital anomaly section. Let's talk now about preterm delivery, which we know is a significant predictor of long-term adverse outcomes in infants, um, delivery before 37 weeks. So this is, again, a PACTG trial, the SMART trial. Over a four-year period, 1,800 infants um, who were um, exposed in utero and a preterm delivery rate of 19%. This is compared to about 8 to 10% in, in uh, the general population. The reason I wanted you to see this slide is that overall, when you look at these unadjusted and adjusted odds ratios, the factors associated with spontaneous preterm birth are not the ART. It's black race, income less than $20,000 a year, and CD4 less than 200. A lot of work is being done in the OBGYN community to try to understand and prevent preterm delivery, and a lot of it is things that are not at all related to her HIV status. However, when you look at the subgroup of women who had first trimester exposure, this is about 750 women, there was an association between spontaneous preterm birth and the PI-containing um, regimens. It wasn't seen with NNRTI regimens. You can see the adjusted odds ratio here of 1.6. 
um, and a p-value of 0.01. This is compatible with a number of other reports that have shown an association between preterm delivery and protease inhibitors. And this is where you have that risk-benefit discussion with the patient. Obviously, the benefits of ART are humongous in pregnancy. Which regimen you give her and what the side effects are of that regimen and how she tolerates it is the negotiation, the back and forth in the discussion that you have. There was no association seen with SGA or small for gestational age in this study. And this is an outcome that continues to be looked at in future prospective trials. So if congenital anomalies have to do with the first trimester of pregnancy, PK and dosing has to do with the second and third trimester of pregnancy. Um, and this is really about physiology. So the physiology of pregnancy that you probably remember is that the cardiac output increases significantly from four to six liters a minute. The plasma volume increases significantly 40%. Both of those, these factors lead to an increase in volume of distribution and lower plasma drug concentrations. There's also an increased portal vein flow rate and GFR rate that speeds your drug elimination and excretion and changes in hepatic enzyme activity like increases in CYP3A4 and 2D6 and decreases in CYP2C19 and CYP1A2. You cannot assume that a drug that gets you therapeutic levels in a non-pregnant woman will do the same thing in pregnancy for all these reasons, and I'll show you some, some compelling data. There are also placental drug transporters that you don't even need to consider in a non-pregnant woman or in a man um, that leads to certain drugs like NRTIs getting across the placenta very well, giving the baby prep, and drugs that don't get across the placenta at all, like protease inhibitors. So this is from AIDS 2018. Most of these studies are small. This is 30 women in this PK trial. And pharmacokinetics with the area under the curve, if you're not used to looking at these, these are a little bit complicated. But the point is that this is a 24-hour drug level. So 30 women prescribe daily Elvitegravir, Cobicostat, TDF-FTC. Over a 24-hour period after they take their medicine, the drug levels are going to rise and then fall. So what I want you to focus on is the difference between the line with the triangles, the postpartum woman, to the line in the second trimester with the circles and the third trimester with the squares. You can even tell from the back of the room, I'm certain, that the drug levels here are nowhere as good as the drug levels postpartum. This is a 24% lower area under the curve in the second trimester and a 59% lower area under the curve in the third trimester. This is very concerning information. Maybe we could overcome this with higher dosing. Those trials need to be done. This is one reason why I think it is better to be a little reluctant with this newest medicines to use those automatically because it's not only congenital anomalies, it's really PK and pharmacodynamics that are really critical too. You, you, the last thing you want is to have a woman suppressed throughout pregnancy until she gets to 36 weeks when her viral load starts to rebound. The other things you want to do to optimize your ART management in pregnancy is to support her ART adherence. Obviously, the medications are a big part of what we think about. If she's not taking them, you're not doing yourself or her any good. You want to think about comorbidities, hepatitis co-infection, drug use, mental health, assess her support network. There is the real existence of this cliff in retention for women who have a delivery, so discuss that with them. Discuss keeping engaged in care even when they're busy with the newborn. It's really important. Um, and these are the perinatal resources I promised you. The perinatal HIV guidelines are excellent. They're updated twice a year. You can get tables that tell you placental levels and breastfeeding safety for all the drugs. There's a perinatal consultation service at UCSF, and here's their number. 
There's an HIV listserv that a bunch of us are on to share complicated cases. But maybe the most important thing is to know your local team, know your OBGYNs and your MFM team, know your pediatricians. Um, these are the people who will help you co-manage the patients you see, and they're a really great resource. So the money slide, the quiz slide, would be what the current US perinatal ART guidelines are. So recommended options for NRTIs, TDF, FTC, or a Bacavir 3TC, with protease inhibitor um, adazanivir boosted with ritonavir, or twice daily darunavir boosted with ritonavir. For integrase inhibitors, it's raltegravir twice a day. If they're on a single day option, switch them to twice a day when they're pregnant. And dolutegravir right now is recommended after 14 weeks. This is a moving target as we talked about, but this is the current recommendation. PI boosted with cobicostat is not recommended because of the PK data I showed you, as well as alvitegravir cobicostat. So a couple of the research questions I just listed here for you, I think we need more safety and efficacy data on the new ART. We want to use this in our pregnant patients. We just need the data first. We need more pharmacologic studies. We need better interventions for retention and care. We need to understand more about breastfeeding safety. Does U equal U in the breastfeeding um, uh, woman? We are collecting more information on the long-term pediatric outcomes. And there's a really exciting um, task force on research specific to pregnant and lactating women commissioned by the NIH that includes representation from FDA and industry to say instead of protecting women from research, we need to include them in research so we can have answers to these questions without waiting 20 to 30 years. In conclusion, I think PMTCT is one of the great success stories of the HIV epidemic to date. We need good clinical trials to identify these uncommon ART outcomes in pregnancy that may be registries. Women of reproductive age should have access to well-designed clinical trials. And really supporting sexual health in women with HIV means we have an ongoing discussion with them about their contraception preferences, their fertility desires, and the risks and benefits of different ART regimens. Collaboration and communication with the colleagues, as I mentioned, is really another critical component. Um, and with that, I'd like to thank my wonderful team at UAB, and the team at the 1917 Clinic and the Center for Women's Reproductive Health. Um, my thoughts of, of HIV and pregnancy are really informed by the research I do in Cameroon on HIV and pregnancy. Um, my funding and contact information is here. I'd be happy to hear from any of you. And I think I left time for questions. Hi, thank you very much. I'm Jean Keller. I'm from Johns Hopkins. I work, um, I'm the director of the Women's HIV Program, and I see that you mentioned breastfeeding, and I just wanted to get your comments and expand on it a little bit, because we're finding the, the guidelines, we still don't recommend breastfeeding in this country. However, we are getting more and more, we're seeing women who are immigrants, who are troubled by this because of the family pressure. So often they'll come to us and say, my mother-in-law is here, and if I don't breastfeed, she's going to assume I have HIV. So the guidelines have changed to preferred harm reduction model. And we've recently come across several cases at Hopkins where we've really had to work not only with OBGYNs, but with our nurses, with our uh, pediatric staff and our neonatal staff to come up with a protocol. So I just wanted to throw out there that this is going to, this is going to happen before we have the research numbers back and that we have to deal with it as best we can and help women through. If we just say don't breastfeed, they're going to do what they're going to do, and that's not the way to, to handle it. So you may want to expand on that. 
Yeah, thank you for that, that question. I agree 100%. And it really is um, often the women, as you mentioned, who are coming from outside the U.S., where it is standard of care for them to breastfeed, even with HIV, that they get the pressure from their families and they don't want their status to be disclosed um, um, to their family and their loved ones. It is, like other things in medicine, the discussion of risks and benefits. I, I would, um, if the woman is telling me that this is what she has decided to do, then we come up with a way for her to do it as safely as possible. This is a paucity of data in a situation where we, most people think if she's taking her ART every day, the safety should be pretty good. Um, I've heard really smart people at conferences have arguments about the viral levels in the breast milk of a woman who is fully suppressed in her serum over a long period of time. So I think there are certainly arguments that transmission is possible. Um, I was telling Allison at dinner yesterday, I've heard some pediatricians make very cogent arguments that any risk to a fetus, to a baby above zero is unacceptable. So you're weighing all these thoughts and these, um, the take on this complicated area. But ultimately, the woman is the one who's going to decide. And if she, you have that open rapport and she tells you this is what she's going to do, I think our job is to make it as safe as her to, for her to do what she wants to do. So, some have made the comment that U equals U does not apply to breastfeeding. Right. Do you agree? Well, I mean, I think there are lots of opinion pieces on this right now. You can hear people talking about the science. I think that... If you are trying to reduce the risk as much as possible, close to zero, I would say in the absence of clear data showing that it is safe, the safest option is to not do it. So if a woman asks me, what is your medical recommendation, I say, I prefer formula feeding, but I want to work with you to figure out what is going to be acceptable for you. Great. Steve. Uh, Steve Johnson from Colorado. So I have a question about the neural tube defect signal that went from 0.9 to 0.67 to 0.3, it kind of leaves you very little confidence. We actually know what the risk is. Do you, do you think, are there any sources of data that you expect in the relatively near future, six to 12 months, that might allow us to kind of have the next number to know if it's persistent versus something that dilutes out. Can you so, that yeah, question? so um, it is true. Obviously, as the population of women in the Tsepamo study are followed, the, the risk has decreased from 0.9 to 0.67 down to now 0.3. And that's the evidence of the further follow-up follow up in the more women in the denominator not having the, the outcome of concern. Um, this is still the biggest cohort available that's following data continually. So there are 500 new women who are exposed that we will have data on, I think, probably about a year from now. I'm not sure if it'll be ready by CROI. Um, there are other smaller cohorts. There's a group in Brazil that talked about data at IASU, uh, IAS conference. Um, but that, again, that cohort was, I think, 270 women. So it's nothing like the 1,700 size of the Botswana cohort. I think the Botswana cohort is the best data we have right now. Even as I mentioned, our antiretroviral pregnancy registry, which we're trying to get people to put data in, that denominator is 280 for first trimester dolutegravir exposure. So these rare outcomes are difficult to ascertain. We need a lot of denominator data to see if there's actually a signal. So a corollary brings up uh, our first question, and that is that the dolutegravir neural tube defect data has been reviewed worldwide, and the U.S. recommendations are not to use dolutegravir currently in the, in, around the time of conception or in the first trimester. WHO now says all women and men should use dolutegravir first line. Can you give us insight into the... 
different recommendations? Yeah, so I think part of it is timing. The WHO changed their recommendation after this newest CEPAMO data was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what they're basing it on is the fact that, as I mentioned, there are many fewer ART options for women in Africa compared to women in the US. So most women, for example, where I work in Cameroon, they're all getting a Favarin's TDF-FTC because Cameroon has not made the move yet to adopt Dalutegravir the way Kenya and Botswana have. Um, these are countries making decisions on ART because they purchase large levels of drug for their pharmacy and then give it to 99% of their adults living with HIV. They have limited access to second line ART and very little access at all to third line or later. So we have a panoply of options to think of for our patients. They don't have that luxury. So in that setting, if you're comparing dolutegravir to efavirenz, I think we do have good efficacy data to say that efavirenz is not as effective. It's many more neuropsychiatric side effects than dolutegravir has. That's a different calculation than the perinatal guidelines in the US where we have raltegravir, we have boosted darunavir, we have boosted adazanavir with good safety that's readily available, that's much more effective in the trials compared to the Favarins. So interesting. So we're seeing differences. Um, one might summarize this as the public health approach that the WHO has, treat the most people that you can, versus the US where we, as you say, we have many options. Mm -hmm. Although I guess the guidelines panels are under discussion right now with the newer SUPAMO data. Right, yeah, I was gonna say, so the, the um, last update for the US perinatal guidelines was in December. So they're in discussion now, everyone's sort of waiting to see, did they get rid of that dolutegravir only after 14 weeks and make it an option for women of reproductive age? I mean, anyone who takes care of HIV patients, my patients on dolutegravir love it. They have no side effects, they have very little interaction with their, all their other medicines that they take. It's a great drug. Okay, changing topics. Here's a good one. What's the data on PrEP in pregnancy? So um, fortunately, we are getting more and more data. For a while, the data reports were of people who were in some of these PrEP demonstration projects who became pregnant. So there was early first trimester exposure, but not exposure through pregnancy. There are a number of demonstration trials going on now showing significant efficacy, as you'd expect, if you give PrEP to a woman who's at risk of getting HIV, whether she's in a serodiscordant couple relationship in Africa or a, 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 um, at risk for someone living in the US. Um, there have been concerns about potential risk of tenofovir exposure in utero on the, the pediatric outcomes. If you impact bone growth in adults, what will we do to a growing fetus? Um, and those outcomes we have now up until one year, two years, three years, and everything is looking very reassuring. Um, so I think that PrEP is a great option for pregnant women who are at risk. We know that pregnancy increases a woman's risk of getting HIV twofold. So if anything, it's particularly important to talk with women about um, PrEP when they're, when they're exposed. The difficulty is that a lot of women do not realize that they're exposed. They think they're a monogamous relationship or they don't realize their partner's HIV infected. For a number of reasons, when we do these risk-based calculations for women, we're missing a lot of women who would and should benefit. Why is the risk twofold higher in pregnancy for HIV acquisition? It's a great question. I don't think we really know. Um, there's questions about whether or not it's related to hormones or cervical ectropion. Um, I don't know, Jeannie, if you have anything you want to add. I don't think the mechanism is very well understood. Okay. Um, when do we recommend a C-section in a woman who is on an ART with an undetectable viral load? 
I'm so glad this question was asked. So there's so many studies now showing in the US that there are many people who were stuck in the old days where everyone with HIV and pregnancy needed a cesarean section. I, I give talks in rural Alabama and I try to talk these um, providers into no longer doing it. Very clear studies showing there is zero benefit to a woman who has an undetectable viral load or a viral load even less than 1,000 after 36 weeks or at the time of delivery. Um, added risk for infection, added risk for hospitalization and other complications, as you know, and zero benefit. Um, there's also questions that we get about well, women who has already had rupture of membranes. If she's had rupture of membranes, is there a benefit to doing a cesarean? The, the studies show doing it before there's rupture of membrane has a benefit. After rupture of membranes, I think a lot of people think there may not be a benefit. Um, uh, sometimes the OBGYNs tell me they're worried that a woman who's been undetectable all through pregnancy has all of a sudden becomes detectable and they don't have a viral load from yesterday. And I encourage them that if you talk to the woman and she tells you she's taking her medicine every day, there really isn't a reason why she, she should all of a sudden become viremic at 38, 39 weeks if she's been undetectable. But and that's if, a really good, it's a really good question. And if viral load is above 1,000? If a viral is above 1,000, then it is the, the data comparing vaginal delivery to cesarean in that setting shows a benefit to cesarean. But of all the patients that we manage, it's now a small minority who have a viral load of 1,000 or greater at the time of delivery. Most of the time, we're able to get them suppressed. Jeannie. Yeah, Judy, thanks for that great overview. I know we asked you to talk about um, uh, women at risk for con conception, quote unquote, and pregnancy. But I thought since we have a few more minutes, maybe you could comment on the ECHO study, uh, which was as recently uh, presented at IAS, um, and the WHO's subsequent recommendations about HRT in relation to HIV risk. And I'm happy to contribute, but I think you're familiar enough with the findings, and it's probably good for this group to know a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Moranzo. So it's a good point. So there was concern in the field, um, primarily in studies coming from Africa, that there was an association between DMPA, which is a very popular type of contraception in most places I've worked in sub-Saharan Africa, and increased HIV acquisition risk. So the question then became, do we um, not offer DMPA for a woman in sub-Saharan Africa or a woman in the US who's at risk of getting HIV? And concern that the data was pretty consistent across a number of studies. This ECHO study is the best prospective trial of women randomized to different contraception options showing zero increased risk with DMPA in terms of HIV acquisition. So this is incredibly reassuring for those of us who do women's health in Africa, where so many of my patients there tell me, I love my depot shot. Do not take away my depot shot. This is something that is really important to me. And before, I would have to tell her, you know, there's some data that there's an increased risk. So it's that risk-benefit discussion. This, I think, puts a lot of people at ease to tell that woman, if this is your preferred method of contraception, from an HIV acquisition standpoint, you are safe picking that method. It is as good as the other methods. You know, um, contraception is not always something that's in a woman's hands. Sometimes the decision is her husband's or her partner's. Um, so to have these conversations where you're giving her as many options as possible and letting her pick what works for her is really the, the preferred place to be. And how big was the study? I don't know. 7,000? 7, 7, big study. Um, and we should highlight this uh, later. It, the ECHO study was really important for a couple of reasons. One, because it was huge. Um, and, and it was mostly in South Africa, which is where you're seeing the highest HIV incidence in young women, as well as the highest rates of depot progesterone use. 
um, two reasons I think it's really important is that they actually got the young women to agree to randomization to three methods of contraception. There was a lot of skepticism that um, young women would even agree to this, um, but they were randomized to depo, to a copper IUD, as Jody noted, and to a levonorgestrel implant, Nexplanon. Um, much to many people's surprise, the highest incidence, actually not statistically significant, was with the copper IUD. Very interesting analyses going on about the fact that the copper IUD probably changes the vaginal microbiome. So you know I would bring it back to the vagina however I could. Um, but seriously, we know so little about how these things affect the environment for risk. And so that's gotten a lot of people really intrigued. And it's like, holy cow, you know, we've been obsessing about depo for t 10 years now, and yet we really didn't even understand, you know, what these other things are doing. So keep your eyes open and your ears open for more information on that. Thanks, Judy. Thanks for that. Okay, last question. Preferred one pill, once daily regimens in pregnancy. So this is really hard. I mean, um, we have gotten patients, since we had a tripla in 2006, we have patients non-pregnant who are loving their single pill regimens. I have to say that most of the time when I'm talking with them, I'm saying, I'm taking you off your single pill until your postpartum, and then I promise you we're going right back to it. Um, and when I tell women that we have more data for the boosted PI and the raltegravir, I honestly, there are very few women who told me I must have a single pill regimen. So with that discussion, I'm usually able to sway them. I think that if they're on um, dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, and it's, and it's later in pregnancy, I have no problem with them continuing it. A lot of the times when you see them, they're already 16, 18, 22 weeks. They can continue on it if they want to. And just to remember that some of the newer drugs simply don't have data and are not recommended in pregnancy. One of the questions was asking about bictegravir, and we just don't have data. Yeah, so that is a drug that's not even on the antiretroviral pregnancy registry. So that's an example of the newest drug is working well for adults. But when you look at their initial study for approval, it's not as if they had large numbers of pregnant women. They were summarily excluded. Um, so I, the, the, in general, in the field, we prefer the options that have more of a track record. Okay, thank you.